0: We're going to be using Galatians chapter 2 really as an introductory verse as we return to our study here in the book of Galatians. I am going to be giving a listing of passages. If you are a note taker, you may want to jot these down as we are going through Because what I want to do is really take an excursus, a little detour path before we begin progressing again through the book of Galatians, and to ask some questions concerning the law. How does Paul or the New Testament view the law? So let's read Galatians 2, and I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. (coughs) We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now what we have here in this passage in the book of Galatians is the first mention of the Greek term namas. Namas is translated into our English language with the word law. Now Paul's been talking about this because there were preachers who were coming in and preaching that if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be part of the family of God, you had to not only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you had to also keep the what? Law. He had to keep the law, in this case, an aspect of the law, and that was circumcision. And Paul dogmatically rejects that. Very emphatically, he rejects it. If you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, He is to be accursed. He is to be devoted to destruction. Would you call that strong language? That is very, very strong language. He repeats it in chapter 1, verse 9, and it says, As we have said before, so say I again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, He is to be devoted to judgment. He is to be a curse. So Paul very, very dogmatically rejects the law as any form of covenant that believers are under. But isn't it interesting that Paul also quotes the law? In fact, in Ephesians, the famous passage that every child learns. Ephesians 6.1. Children, can we all say it? Children, okay. obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do you know what the next verse says? Honor, Honor your father and mother. And he's quoting from where? He's quoting from the law. That's fascinating, isn't it? Or you can take a passage like 1 Corinthians 9 where he's arguing for that those who live of the Gospel, those who preach the Gospel should live of the Gospel. And then he says, don't you know it is written in the law? You don't muzzle the ox while it treads the corn. And you're sitting there thinking, if you're really thinking through everything and trying to summarize everything, you, you kind of say to yourself, well, Paul... You you just rejected that Mosaic covenant, and here you are what? You're quoting it. And there has been long debate on this question of what was Paul's relationship to the law? What should our relationship to the law be as New Testament believers? And really, if you want to look at if you got it on a little sliding scale, and you want to go from two opposite ends, front to the other, you have people who say today, well, Paul says we're not under the law, so I get to do whatever I want to do. And they're justifying it by saying that Paul said we're what? We're not in the law. All the way to the other side where you really have people who say, well, you have to keep the law as evidence of your salvation.
1: If you're not keeping the
0: law, then you probably don't even know the Lord at all. Would you call those two... Different perspectives. And then you got perspectives all in between. And I suppose that in church history, probably the number one user of paper to make books is the subject of Arminianism versus Calvinism. That's probably number one. Number two is probably a New Testament believer's relationship to the law. That's pretty That's pretty intense, would you say? And so, <clears throat> seeing that this is the first place where the term namas, or law, is mentioned in the book of Galatians, I thought that it would be profitable for us as a congregation to consider this difficult subject, knowing that I will not be exhausted. My purpose for us is really, at the end of this excursus, is really to give us a framework on trying to understand a proper understanding of Paul's relationship to the law, therefore our what? Our relationship to the law. And so tonight what I want to do is just look at how the word law is used in our Bibles, try to characterize, categorize this, and then if the Lord be pleased, <clears throat> next Lord's Day I'd like to give the framework for our consideration. Now, I did not come up with this myself. Several months ago, <clears throat> I received an invitation in my email, inbox, from Virginia Beach Theological Seminary, and they were doing a conference on Paul and the law, and it didn't take me too long to know I want to be there, okay? Not only were we beginning to engage this idea of the book of Galatians, but I knew what a hot topic it was, and so... Uh, soon after I got the email, I signed up for it. My wife told my wife, I said, I've signed up for it. She's like, wow, you must really want to go. <laughs> I said, yes, I really do want to go. And lo and behold, as we got closer to the date, circumstances prohibited me from going. But they decided to put the lectures online. And I was very thankful that they did. In fact, I asked them, when I told them I couldn't make it, I asked them if they would please put these online. I think that was their original intent anyway. And they recorded it and made it publicly available. <clears throat> they were given in three lectures. <clears throat> the first one was the challenges of Paul and the law raising the issues and presenting a solution. That was the very first one. In fact, I forwarded that to several in our congregation. The second lecture was <clears throat> examining the Christian's relationship to the law. And the third lecture was <clears throat> the condemning and enslaving power of the law. How about Gentiles in the law? How, how does that work? And <clears throat> normally when I listen to a sermon I'm normally listening to a sermon while I'm doing other things. Like if I'm doing administrative work or something like that, I'll have a sermon going on in the background. I've always been able to do that, listen, pick up things. But with this one, I started it that way, and then I stopped it and said, no, I'm going to give full attention. I'm going to take notes. (laughs) I'm going to write this down because it really was super informative. Now, it's not my intention to echo the conference, but I will be drawing heavily upon the material that was presented at the conference so that we might have what I consider a proper framework on this very, very difficult uh, subject. In fact, I remember as I was listening to one of it, I was listening to the question, and I thought... Well, I don't think that's so difficult because this phrase is used here and this phrase is used there. And 15 minutes later, the lecturer said, now here's how I look at it. And he used the same verses and came to the same conclusion. So that's always helpful when they agree with what you're already, direction you are heading. And so if they didn't agree and they're right, well, guess what? I have to change my what? I have to change my view. But in this case, I just didn't have it systematized But I was right in there with the subject. So, now the first thing I do want to say is what Paul said about the law. The same man who rejected the Mosaic Covenant as a basis for believers in the New Testament said this about the law. The law is holy. So whatever whatever his reasoning is for rejecting the law as a basis of covenant for New Testament believers, he is saying that that law is what? It's holy. He also said that the law is righteous. And he also said that the law is good. So whatever conclusions we we come to, or whatever reasoning that we think about, about law as a New Testament believer, we should never think that the law is bad. The law is not bad. The law is what? The law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. It's good. In fact, Paul would say that if there was a law that could save us, then righteousness would come by that law. But the problem isn't the law. The problem's me. That's where the problem lies at. I'm unholy and unrighteous. (laughs) Not good. Okay? That is me. So, folks, if you're having discussions about the law with someone, sometimes they will present it in such a way As if, if you make any form of appeal to the wisdom of the law, that they think you're doing something that's bad. No, the law is good. The law is holy, and the law is righteous. And young people and adults, I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with law. The world says the problem is your bad laws. No, the problem isn't laws. The problem's who? Me. The problem's me. My chafing under a law, whether it be Mosaic law, or whether it be a rule at a Christian college or institution or church, it's not the problem with the law. It's the problem is my response to the law. That's where the problem lies at. Now, I'm not saying that that there can't be any bad laws. People can make bad laws. But the problem ultimately lies where? With me. It's in us. So having said that, when we approach this difficult subject, we have to look at how the law is used in the Scripture. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. When we're looking at the Greek New Testament, we're looking at the word "namas," as I said to you. When we're talking about the law in the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word that we translate Torah. Torah. So whether we're talking about the word Torah, <coughs> law, capital L, or whether we're looking at the word law, little l, we're still talking about that type of legal code that is out there. And folks, when you talk to people and they use the word law, you have to immediately try to discern how are they using it. Are they using it, Ten Commandments? Would that be the law? Mm-hmm. That certainly would be the law, Right? But as we well know, the law can be used to mean other things also. So let's take a look at these eight, and then we'll be through this afternoon. I want you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 19. The book of Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19... The Lord is going to refer to law in reference to the whole Mosaic Covenant. The whole Mosaic Covenant. So sometimes when God refers to the word law, He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the whole Mosaic Covenant. And you'll see that Exodus 19, not to be simplistic, comes before Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? Well, the Ten Commandments, right? So in Exodus 19, Moses is still going up and down in the mount, and the Lord says to Moses, verse 3, from the mountain, and he said, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians.' And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my what? My covenant. Do you see that? Okay. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments at this point because those commandments are not given till what chapter? 20. Till chapter 20. He's talking about that whole Mosaic covenant. He says, "'If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, "'then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, "'for all the earth is mine. "'And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. "'These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel.'" Verse 7, "'So Moses came, called the elders of the people, "'sat before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him,' And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will what? We will do. So here he, he's, not, he's talking about that whole mosaic law covenant that is there. And God says, if you'll obey my voice and you keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. So number one, when he talks about the law, it can be referring to the whole mosaic law covenant covenant as a whole. Secondly, it can refer, as we've already mentioned, to the Ten Commandments. And as I mentioned before, Exodus chapter 20, he goes through those commandments, verse 3, You shall know their gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness that is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. He goes on in verse 6 that he shows loving kindness. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder... 14, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So that's what we refer to as the Ten, 10 Commandments. And those commandments were written on, written on stone. So turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the... What? With the law. Everybody see that? And folks, you remember when he came down from that mount, Israel had already broken them. And he destroyed those stone tablets. God wrote on these stone tablets himself. The next time Moses goes up, he takes two tablets, but he was the one that carved them out and he was the one that wrote it on those tablets. But the point is, is in Exodus 19, he referred, if you'll keep my covenant, the whole thing, that whole Mosaic covenant, here, when he refers to the law, he says, "All right, you're going to have two tablets, and all those two tablets are the, the law. Okay. Now granted, that wasn't all the law. I mean, he talks about not mixing fabrics when you wear them, how to plow, what happens when people have disputes, you know, a person goes out on the Sabbath, they pick up things to eat, they're to be stoned. I mean, there's all other parts of that law, right? But here, he's referring to specifically the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written, which I have written for their instruction. So, so far we know this. We know that the Mosaic Law, when you talk about the law, you could be referring to the whole covenant. Or, I could say the law, and I'm referring to just the what? The Ten Commandments. So at this point, can the word law have different nuances? It can. Thirdly, it can refer to the Pentateuch. What is the Pentateuch? It is the first five books of your Bible. The law can refer to Genesis. Genesis, did you hear that? Was that before Moses? (laughs) That's before Moses. It can refer to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Isn't that amazing? Now take your Bibles and let's turn back to the New Testament to see where that happens. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. (coughs) So we're arguing that (coughs) the law can refer to that whole Mosaic covenant. It could refer to just the Ten Commandments. It could refer to the Pentateuch. And in Luke 24, you're familiar with the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And Jesus ends up appearing to them. Now look in verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me, where? In the law of Moses, and the the Psalms must be fulfilled. Folks, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms comprise the whole Old Testament. That's how they divided up the whole Old Testament. So if I said prophets... You know what I'm talking about, right? Major prophets, minor prophets. Doesn't mean the minor prophets are insignificant, okay? But you got the prophets, right? Then you have the poetry section called the Psalms. And what's left? The Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. So here Jesus is referring to those first five books of the Bible. And He calls it the law of who? You say, well, are there any laws in Genesis? Well, there's narrative, isn't there? He calls it the law of Moses. Who wrote Genesis? Well, I know God did, but what human author? Moses. Moses wrote those first five books of the Bible, and Jesus calls it the law. That's interesting, isn't it? But, folks, not only is the law referring to the whole Mosaic covenant or just the Ten Commandments or the first five books of the Bible, are you ready for this? It could refer to your whole Old Testament. You say, where? Well, let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm just giving one location here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. In this chapter, Paul is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah. Now let's read what he says, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 21. For in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And do you have a little column in your Bible where it gives little references? Folks, where does that reference come from? Is 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. And Paul says it's written in the law. It's written in the law. He sure does know how to muddy the water, doesn't he? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was just one nuance? Like it only referred to the Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that make life a little simpler? Well, he says that there is a time where you refer to the law. And it's referring to the whole Old Testament. Or we could just say all of Scripture up to that point, right? That's, that's amazing. Now, I would have said, in Isaiah, it is written. But God says, in the law, it is written. So, can it refer to the whole covenant? Yes. It can refer to the whole covenant. And a lot of times, our translators will actually capitalize the word L when it's referring to that. It could refer to just the Ten Commandments. I would imagine that if you went to your neighbors and you said, what's the law? They would quote what? They would say one of the commandments if they had any exposure to it at all. In fact, I've run across people in evangelism and I'll say, well, how do you know that you're saved? And they'll say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. I'm keeping the law. Of course, when you go over it, they find out they're not. But in any case, the word "law" referring to the Ten Commandments, does God refer to the first five books of the Bible as the law? He does refer to that as the law, and it can also refer to the whole Old Testament. But number five, if we turn to the book of Romans, chapter two. Romans, chapter two. <clears throat> The word law can refer to an internal law in the hearts of all humanity. An internal law in the hearts of all humanity. Let's begin reading in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... Okay, let's pause. Do the Gentiles have the law? No, the law was given to what nation? To the Jews. For when Gentiles who do not have the law understood the written law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that, verse 15, they show the work of the law written where? In their hearts. hearts. Everybody see that? So there is a written law. You agree with that? There is a law that is written, a work of the law written in the hearts of all humanity. You go to the most primitive of societies and they will have all kinds of perversities, but you will find in that society some laws that conform to what we would call, let's just call it the Ten Commandments. And everybody knows that. Even people in America, you could say they could say I don't I don't believe in law. Don't 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 do that. I mean, I believe if you want to cohabitate with anybody before your marriage, that's okay. Until it's his daughter. And then you find out what. I mean, he's a little irate about this. Why are you so irate? (laughs) Because there's a work of the law in that person's heart that says this is wrong. And it differs. Consciousness can be hardened. They can be seared. It differs on how that works in a lost person's heart. But even in the most primitive of societies, they will have certain laws, like like you know. They know they're not supposed to steal from the other hut. Well, who taught them that? They were born with this. It's wired into their heart. And it says in verse fifteen, <clears throat> in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, how do you know it's there? Their conscience bearing what witness, Witness. so they can do certain things, and then they feel bad about it, right? Or they think about doing something, and something inside of them says you shouldn't do that. There was a film, and in the film, this little cartoon, cartoon character says, "Well, what is a conscience?" And the response is, it's the little thing that keeps getting in the way. Right? From doing what I want to what? Mm -hmm. I just want to do. Their conscience bears witness to the work of the law in their hearts. Because this is what they do. In their thoughts, they alternatively accuse or defend. Okay. That's how you know that work of the heart is. So when we talk about a law, we can talk about a written law, and we can talk about the work of the law that's in how many of humanity? All. All of humanity. And folks, here's the amazing thing. <clears throat> that when a Gentile sets up, he doesn't have the written law, but he sets up certain laws because of the work of the law, you will still find that he breaks them. So that all mankind is guilty before God. So we could talk about a law, we could be talking about the work of the law. That's in all humanity. We can talk about the law, and we're talking about the written law, that Mosaic covenant. We could talk about the law, we could talk about the law that was written on tablets. We could talk about the law, and talk about the Pentateuch. We could talk about the law, and referring to all of the Old Testament scripture, not just the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, but also the prophets, what they wrote. And then we're here in Romans, go over to Romans chapter 7. We could also talk about the law, <clears throat> number five, uh, excuse me, number six, as just a governing principle of life. So in Romans chapter seven, <clears throat> Paul is talking about the law and he talks about it being holy, righteous, and good. He talks about the problem's not the law, the problem is me. And then he says, even as a believer, look at verse 16. He says, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 19, for the good I want, I do not what? I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. (laughs) Does that sound paradoxical? And that's true in a believer. And so Paul says, verse 21, and I'm going to quote the King James first. The King James words it this way, I find then a law. In the New American Standard, it's the word principle. I find, I find, I find then a law. This is a governing law that's always true. That's what a law is, right? I find in a law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do what? The one who wants to do good. Whereas the King James words that when I will to do good, when I will to do good, evil is present with me. All at the same time. That's a law. So, there is, there is a law that refers to governing principles. That's not the Ten Commandments. And it's not the whole Mosaic Law Covenant. It's not the Pentateuch. It's not all of Scripture. It's not really the internal law that's going on. This is another law. This is called the Law of Sin. Boy, we're just surrounded by laws, aren't we? Just Everywhere. Then number seven, if we go back to the book of Romans, and let me just go down to chapter two. Actually, let me go to chapter one. And in this chapter, he's talking about Gentiles. And he's talking about their Gentile rejection of God and the darkening of their hearts and the results of it. Verse 26 <clears throat> For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function. Everybody, see that word natural. It's not the word law, but everybody see the word natural. They exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 27. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty of of their era, sometimes you'll hear this in our in our papers and in discussion about our nation. There is what is called natural law, natural law. In other words, <clears throat> if you say to me, "Prove to me." that women ought to have babies. Well, there's a lot of ways I could approach that, right? But here here would be natural law. Well, they have a womb. Right? I'm appealing to something, it's a law, it's true for how many women? All women. Now, don't come to me and say, what if I have it surgically removed? Okay. Women have wombs. All right. We expect them to have wombs. If they come out with no womb, we say that's a problem. Okay. We call that natural law. That there are natural functions. When you're talking about marriage, what is nat- What is the natural law that all men can see? Male and female, right? That's a natural law. So you you could be referring to natural laws, things that are clearly self-evident. And when you bring them up, it is self-evident. They would have to argue against all the evidence, like our Supreme Court did. Okay, 10,000 plus years of human history male and female and then they decide that's not right that's unnatural that could be the definition of insanity right but there is natural law and then lastly number 8 i want to turn to two places we're going to return to galatians but i want you to turn to first corinthians chapter 9 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is communicating how he exercises his liberty. And the goal of liberty isn't that I get to do it. The goal of liberty is that I cannot do it under certain circumstances. So he says, verse 19... Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. For what purpose? That I might win more. Everybody see that? Okay, now he's going to go into different classifications of people. Verse 20. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win who? Jews. In other words, Paul didn't go in and just start lamb blasting all the cultural things that had developed throughout the years with the Jewish nation. I'm not talking about the law, I'm just talking about the cultural things. Many of you are familiar with Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor goes to China and he wasn't getting much of a hearing. So he adopted, there wasn't anything wrong with their clothing, wasn't immodest or anything like that, but he adopted their clothing and he adopted their hairstyle. It wasn't identified with idolatry or anything. It was just identified with the culture as a whole. And he found that he got, a, he got much more of a hearing when he did that. This is what Paul's doing. Okay, When he goes in and he's seeking to win a Jew... He makes himself a slave to those things in the culture that are really not entities. Look what he says, verse 20. To those who are under the law. As what? Under the law. law. Though not being myself under the law. Okay, so let's pause here. Is Paul under the law? No, whatever that means, the answer that's no. But if he is in a Jewish situation where that Mosaic covenant is being filled out like he did when he went to Jerusalem and they asked him if he would take a vow. So he shaved his head. They weren't doing it to be justified. Okay? He shaved his head, presented himself, concentrated himself. What is he doing? Well, as those under the law, I'm going to be under the law so that I might, I might win them. In other words, I'm not being a stumbling block. Gospel that can be a stumbling block, but I'm not going to be a stumbling block. Verse twenty-one. To those who are without law, so as without what? Without law. Alright, who didn't have the law? The Gentiles. Gentiles didn't have the law. So if Paul was in Jerusalem, did he eat bacon? Yes. <laughs> With thanksgiving. He didn't eat bacon because what? He's trying to win people. He has the liberty to eat bacon, doesn't he? Yes. But he voluntarily chooses not to. Okay, But when he's with the Gentiles, did he eat bacon? Well, I don't know, but probably, right? In other words, he didn't keep the dietary law. Okay, Now note what he says, verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, Everybody see that? Hmm. So here we have, we have without law, but with the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Right, there's there's our eighth one. The law of Christ. Paul says he's not under the law. But is he without law? No, he's not without law. He's under the law of who? Christ. Everybody see that? Now that gives us a hint on New Testament believers, doesn't it? We're not under the law. Are we without law? No. We're not antinomian. We're under the law of Christ. Christ. And so he's doing that so that he might win people. Okay, now go back to Galatians. Because Paul mentions this in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is called in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to him yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. <clears throat> Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law. The law of who? Christ. The law of Christ. Everybody see that? So folks, we know that Paul was not under the law. Do we know that? We do know that. But he's not anti-law. He's not antinomian. Remember, that was one end of the scale. He is under law. He's under whose law? The law of Christ. And so, folks, at this point, what we need to understand is this. That when we see the word law, we need to pause and ask ourselves, how narrow is that word being used? Or how broad is it being used? How narrow? Two tablets words right how broad could it be used the whole Old Testament <clears throat> and everything in between the Pentateuch we have to ask ourselves is Paul talking about the internal law in the hearts of all people we have to ask ourselves: as he's talking about the law in the sense of a governing principle, there's certain natural law out there. Is he talking about that, or is he explicitly talking about the law of who? The law of Christ. And folks, <clears throat> that's that's where proper taking time in your reading to try to discern that is very, very, very helpful. Because if someone says to me, I'm under the law. I'm I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, yes, but I'm not without law. I'm under the law of who? The law of Christ. Whatever that means. I'm under that law. And folks, Paul is making a distinction between the law of Christ and the capital L of the law. He says, I'm not under law. You talk to me about a Jew being under law, well, I'll voluntarily submit to those things that I can that are under law because I want to win them. But I'm not under law. I can even go to the Gentiles and I can preach the Gospel. They don't know anything about the law. I mean, if there's no Christianity, no Bibles, no Old Testament, they don't know anything about the law. But I'm not without law. I'm under the law of Christ. And folks, when you're talking about a controversy on relationship to the law, you can see that very quickly it can get very muddied depending on what they are saying. Now sometimes, I'll close with this, and I'll pick this up, the Lord willing, next week. Sometimes the way people view the law is they view it in three parts. They will say, well, that law has ceremonial aspects. That Mosaic law covenant had judicial aspects. And that Mosaic law had moral aspects. And really, if you look at it, if I'm speaking very generally, could you divide it up that way? You could. And so they would say, well, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial aspects, and Christ fulfilled the judicial aspects of it, but we're still under the moral aspects of it, well... There's a lot of problems with that, but let me give you one and then I'll tell you how I think Paul views the law and you can think through your New Testament between now and next week to see if it's true. Folks, if you're talking about ceremonial, judicial, or moral, I think if you take a look at the Mosaic Covenant, you will find there's overlap. For instance, if I I mixed... Cotton and wool in a garment was that a law? Yes. Okay. Wasn't a mix of materials like that? Well, you could say, well, that's that's a judicial law. Okay. But what if I break it? Am I morally liable? See, there's overlap here. And then if I am morally liable, well, that takes me to the ceremonial part of it. But I think when you look at the Apostle Paul in his writing, I think you will find that he is referring to the law as a unity. As one. That I don't know of anywhere in my New Testament where Paul breaks it up like that. To me, and and what I just told you, three parts of the law, all that, that's what I was taught as a young believer. But looking in my Bible, I, I can't see that. I think it's helpful in some cases to divide it up like that. But when Paul says we're not under the law, he's talking about the law as a whole. I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I am under the law of who? The law of Christ. And that is the new covenant. Folks, we're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. The law of Christ. So let's pray together.